Heavenly Father, we do thank you, we praise you, we love and honor you, you're such an awesome God. And Lord, again, just as the world may be uh, going through difficult times, we thank you, Lord, that as we stand upon the sure foundation, the rock Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. And Father, I pray, Lord, you would use this as an opportunity for the gospel. The Lord, we'd be able to share our faith with those who are afraid, those who are, do have concerns. And Father, may we be able to point them to you. Lord, we pray tonight for your word as we look at just a, a picture of your crucifixion. And Lord, as we also just look at just several other things in your word, that Father God, it would just touch each person's heart here. And Father, it would conform us more to your image. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship and honor your name. We pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, by way of quick review from last week, and again, as I covered out, we just go right through the Bible. So last week we covered the first... 31 verses or so of Mark chapter 10. And we looked at two main topics. We looked at children and the kingdom of God. Our number one job as parents, we talked about, is the fact that we are called to bring our children to the Lord. You know, God has no grandchildren. Amen? You know, nobody gets into heaven because mom and dad were missionaries. A lot of people think that, well, my mom and dad were missionaries. So I, you know, I'll have a good end with the Lord. And God has no grandchildren. So God, but God has called us as parents that we are to bring our children to Christ. We are to teach them the truth of God's Word. And those of you who may not be parents yet, I want to encourage you to, to really be the spiritual leader in your home, beginning with your marriage and then with your children. We are to lay hands of discipline upon our kids. The Bible says a man who does not discipline his children hates him. But we are also to lay hands of blessing upon our children as well. I share with you that God put it on my heart many years ago to go in every single night and lay hands on each one of my kids and pray for them. And the reason I do that is because I know that that they're so precious, and they're His kids. And I so desire that they walk with God. The Bible says, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. And for me, that's absolutely the case. The greatest moments of my life were leading my kids to the Lord, baptizing my kids, seeing them walk with God. You know, my daughter shared last week, getting the Bible to work. Those are things that are precious to me, is seeing my kids love the Lord. And we looked at that last week. Then we also looked at the rich young ruler, and we saw how the Lord, using hyperbole, said, you know, it's easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's because the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And we saw where the rich young ruler came, and he was a pretty pious guy. And he thought, you know, hey, I've kept the commandments. The Lord even shared with him six of the commandments, and he said, oh, I've, I've kept them all. And he said, well, go and sell all you have, come and follow me. And we know that the rich young ruler's heart was broken because he had many possessions. And you know what, today we, we need to make sure that, that He is first and foremost in our life. My favorite verse in the Bible is Philippians 1.21, which says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that doesn't mean that Christ is number one in my life. It means He's number one, He's number ten, He's number one hundred, He's number one thousand, He's every number in between. Jesus Christ is my life. Amen? And so for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you know what? The rich young ruler had missed it. And the rich young ruler was caught up in a lot of other things. So tonight, time permitting, because we we're going to take some time for communion at the end, we're going to look at the rest of, of Mark chapter 10. We'll see Jesus speak again of His death and His resurrection. We'll see Jesus define what true greatness really is. And it's going to be a, def a different definition than what the world has, that's for sure. And then lastly, we're going to see, again, if time permits, Jesus giving sight to another blind man. So let's pick up in verse 32. And Jesus again is going to speak of his resurrection. And as he speaks of his resurrection, as he speaks of his death, as he speaks of what lies before him, he says it over and over and over. We know for a fact that this is at least the third time that the apostles have heard it. So let's begin in verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now remember we talked last week how Jesus 
the Bible says his face was set toward Jerusalem. He was set like flint. He had made a decision. He was going to Jerusalem. And the Lord knew what was waiting for him. And it was death. And it was torment. And it was pain. And the Lord had, had in his heart, his desire was to go and to fulfill the commandment of the Father. To go and pay the price for each one of us. Jesus Christ is God. But he also is, was 100% man. And he went to pay the price for each one of us. And he was headed toward Jerusalem. And as he was going to Jerusalem, look what it says. And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And what they were amazed at, they were amazed at the Lord's determination, his heart, his desire to go, even though what lay before him was pain. He, he had such a burden and a passion to go. And they were amazed that the Lord, and it says the Lord went before them, and they followed him. And he gives them an even greater detail as we go on about his suffering. You're going to tell them where, where he, he's been telling them over and over again what would happen. Now he's going to tell them where it's going to happen. Look at the rest of the verse. And as they followed him, they were afraid. They were afraid of what was coming. And in these verses being forward, he, he's going to tell them again. We're going to see his determination. We're going to see his heart. And they were afraid because they knew what lied ahead. Verse, the rest of the verse. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. It says in the companion text that he was steadfast in his face toward Jerusalem and he had already told the apostles what was going to come. And now he pulls them aside again and he's going to tell them, to prepare them. And it was because of his supernatural love for each one of us that he would not be swayed from his path of pain, torture, and death that lay before him. Again, Jerusalem's his destination. He's not going to turn aside. And they began to consider that danger and they were, they were fearful. You know what, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus ever afraid of anything? What do you think? What do you think? No. Jesus, there were times when Jesus said that this cup would, not, would pass from me. You know, and that, it was not because of fear. It was not because of fear. Because I want you to understand something. Fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. When I'm afraid, I'm saying God's not in control. When I'm worried, I'm saying God has, God has lost, God's not in control. God's not going to take care of me. I began to worry. I began to look at things from a physical point of view rather than a spiritual one. When I'm anxious, I say, God must have forgotten about me. Amen? The Lord was never afraid, but His followers were afraid quite frequently. And they're afraid because they know what's coming. And He pulls them aside again to give them even greater detail. And here's what He says in verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. So He's telling them very clearly, we're going. We not might be going. We're not thinking about going. We're going. It's a done deal. And you know with God, everything is a done deal. Amen? God is sovereign. God knows what's happening next. God is in control, and I'm so glad. God was not surprised when the planes hit the World Trade Center. God is not surprised that bombs are dropping on Afghanistan. God is not surprised at what's going to happen tomorrow. God is faithful. He's in control. And he tells his apostles, we are going to Jerusalem. This was the most holy city. This is the place where the temple was. This is the place where they went and they had the Passover feast. But he's going to tell them that not this time. And there's no remedy. There's no turning back. This trial cannot be avoided. It is necessary to fulfill the will of God. And he says, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. Again, he's giving more detail here than he's ever given about his death. He says, the Son of Man will be betrayed. When he's speaking to the twelve, who's one of the twelve that's sitting there with him? Judas. And he's saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I will be betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed. And in my betrayal, I will be put into the hands of, look what it says, the chief priests 
and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. So again, he's giving very clear detail. He's saying, look, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be put into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they are going to cast judgment upon me. They're going to condemn me. But, be, but because they're not allowed to carry out the, the death sentence that they're going to condemn me with, they're going to turn me over to the Gentiles, which would be the Romans. This is a pretty clear prophetic statement, isn't it? Can we see exactly what's going to happen? And yet the, the apostles, when it does happen, are going to be afraid, they're going to be blown away, and they're going to miss it. It says, It will deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Verse 34, And they will mock him, and scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Now, while the suffering he would face would be incredible, he gives them the, the real specific details about it. First of all, it says they will mock him. Now, Mocking, they would blaspheme him, they would challenge his deity, they would hit him in the face, they would cover his face, they would hit him in the face and say, prophesy who's hitting you. They would put a crown of thorns upon his head and mock him as the king of the Jews. They would put a robe around him, a purple robe, which represented royalty, with this crown of thorns upon his head, and they would mock him as the king of the Jews. Now I want to say this, one of the things that's most difficult for a human being to deal with is being mocked. Amen? How many, of you, how many of you struggle with that? How many of you want to lash back out? Now, if I'm the son of the living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of the universe, and they're mocking me, and they're beating me, and they're making fun of me, now, that's why I'm not God, they would be piles of dust. Amen? And there'd be a bunch of piles of dust. Oh yeah? Who am I? Oh, let me show you who I am. And that'd be it. But you know what? That's not what God did. They mocked Him, but the Lord took it. Why? Out of His love for everybody in this room. That's why. As they were beating him, I, I can imagine that the Lord was thinking, not only do I know who's hitting me, but I love you, I created you, and I'm going to die for you. And they continued to mock him. Then it says they scourged him. And you know what? We can read right past that, but let me tell you about scourging. Scourging was a cat of nine tails. They took a whip that had nine tails to it. They would put bones or metal, pieces of bone and metal. They would strap you to a post. Then they would take this whip and they would pull it and it would stick in your body. And then when they would pull it back, it would just rip your flesh away. By the third or fourth lash, typically, your whole back was gone. And now they were ripping out pieces of your organs that were in your body. Most people died during scourging. Jesus was scourged. Why was he scourged? To pay the price for our sin out of his love for us. While they were whipping him, again, the Lord loved them as they beat him. And he did that. Forty lashes minus one. So brutal that a, a, a beating was it that most people died. Then they spit upon him. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever had anybody spit in your face? That's like one of the most humiliating things going, right? And you'd have to be truly humble to allow someone to spit in your face. Again, if you're God and you can call the angels out of the sky, or you can just smoke them, but the Lord didn't do that. As they spit in his face, as they humiliated him, the ultimate act of humiliation and degradation, the Lord took it. And why did he take it? He took it out of his love for every one of us. And it says, and they will kill him. They will put him to death physically. So he's saying, it's making it very clear. He's telling him exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. After I am betrayed, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the scribes and the priests. After the scribes and the priests condemn me to death, they're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. Then the Romans are going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to spit in my face. And then they're going to kill me. How many of you ever heard the message, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming? 
Anybody ever heard that before? That's a great message, amen? Because you know what? It's Friday. Friday was the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, right? Good Friday. But guess what? Sunday's coming, amen? And what happened on Sunday? He rose from the dead. The, the event that the enemy thought was such a victorious event, his death upon the cross, the mocking, the beating, the scourging, everything that happened pointed to Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday. Did you know that? If anybody ever asks you why you meet on Sunday, it's because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. Amen? I don't know why the Hindus would meet on Sunday because nobody rose from the dead in the Hindu church. Amen? Nobody rose from the dead for the Muslims either. They, you know what? They're, they're a, it's a, a doctrine of the devil. They desire to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what they desire to do. We've seen it happen at the World Trade Center. Anybody tries to tell you that the Muslims are people of peace, read the Koran. It says that all Jews must die. Anybody who does not accept the Muslim faith must die. Everybody accepted the Muslim faith in the early church, they had a sword stuck to their throat and said, you confess Allah to be God and Muhammad is prophet or we're going to slit your throat. That's the doctrine that's going around the world today. But you know what? We don't serve a dead Muhammad or a, or a dead New Age movement or crystals around our neck. We serve a risen, living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? And not only that, it's, He's alive. And then not only is he alive, but he dwells within us. Because look what it says. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus' sufferings were not the end. They resulted in his glorification and the salvation of every single person who follows him. And this text, again, gives in the greatest detail what would happen to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Again, we see the betrayal of Judas and so on. Now, what Jesus endured out of love for us is also a picture of what occurs in the life of each one of us when we give our life to Him. Because here's what happens to each one of you if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. The first thing that happens is we must be convicted of our sin and see our need for a Savior. Amen? That must happen. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Until you understand that you're a sinner, you'll see no need for a Savior. And you know what? You're all sinners. A lot of churches won't tell you that. You're all sinners, every one of you guys. Amen? Me too. All right, double for me. I'm the chief of sinners, as Paul said, because I know every sin in my life. I look at you guys, you all look pretty good, right? I don't know your thought. I know mine. It's no bueno, right? I mean, I sin. And I need Jesus desperately. And so, you know what? That's the first thing that must happen. But you know what? Then we must become broken and humble and desperate for God. You know, when Jesus Christ was being scourged, don't you think that broke him physically? It's exactly what happened. And that what needs to happen to us spiritually. We need to be broken spiritually and realize that we need a Savior. And then it says He was spit upon. And to me, spit, being spit upon in the face is an act of humiliation. And you know what? Before we can come to God, we must become humble. Amen? We don't come before God and say, God, you're going to be so blessed to have me as one of your kids. Amen? We come before God broken, in desperation. In need for Him. And then it says they killed Him. And you know what? As Christians, we die to the person that we used to be. It is no longer I who live. And what's great is Sunday's coming because on the third day He rose from the dead. And when you were born again, you became a new creation in Christ. Amen? And if He had not risen from the dead, you would not be a new creation in Christ. You know, the Bible says that everybody that walks around this earth is dead in their trespasses and sins. But when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. My focus changes, my desires change, my passions change, the things that are important to me change. Why? Because I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. I love that. So suffering, brokenness, death, all those things produce in the end glory. Amen? A, a man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. 
The problem with most of the world religions today is it's based on self-righteousness, self-achievement. You know, if you go fly this plane into the World Trade Center, then you get to be elevated to the highest part of the, of the Muslim heaven, and you're going to have 70 virgins and 70 palaces, that, and, and you'll have all this food, and you'll be given the strength of 100 men to be with all these women and all this food for all eternity. Now, that's based on your own self-righteousness. It's based upon you achieving something in and of yourself. Without Jesus Christ, I can do nothing That's what the Bible says. Now we move on from His crucifixion, and we're going to now look at Jesus to find what true greatness really is. And again, in the world, we look at greatness in a different way. But look at true greatness from the Word of God's perspective. Now, And this blows me away. Now Jesus talks about the fact that all these things are going to happen to Him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then they're going to give me over to the Gentiles. And they're going to mock me. And they're going to scourge me. And they're going to spit in my face. And they're going to kill me. And on the third day I'm going to raise from the dead. And you would think that the apostles would have some heavy-duty questions for the Lord right about now. Amen? But look what the apostles have to say. Look at the next verse. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Does this seem a little inappropriate to you? You know, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Let me ask you a question. Isn't he getting ready to do something pretty awesome for him already? Isn't he getting ready to go to the cross and pay the price? But what do they want? They're still not getting it. And you know, these are the apostles, not the B-apostles, right? These are the apostles. They don't get it. They're sitting there saying, hey, you know, well, Lord, can we have whatever we want? Lord, I'm going to ask you for stuff. Just give me whatever I want. Can, will you do that? You know what? The Lord's not going to do that. And he's going to define what greatness really is. And when you read this in conjunction, we see that these guys from the inner circle, they come out with selfish ambition. And each time Jesus would announce his coming death on the cross, the responses were weak every time. Remember what happened the first time he told me he was going to die? What did Peter do? Who remembers? What did Peter do? He rebuked Jesus. That's, that's no bueno right there. Peter calls Jesus aside and says, Not so, Lord. You know, you can't say not so and Lord in the same sentence, okay? Because he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, amen? It's yes, Lord. You can't say no, Lord. Lord means I'm serving you. No, Lord? That doesn't work. And Peter calls him aside and says, no, Lord, we, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let you be crucified. And what did the Lord say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Ouch, okay? So we don't, we don't need to tell God what to do, amen? God doesn't need Dave's input. Amen? Or yours either. He doesn't need me to tell him or instruct him. The second time he told them what was going to happen, they responded this way. They argued among themselves who was the greatest. The Lord said, I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And they're all saying, well, I'm greater than you. I'm going to have a bigger, I'm going to have a bigger throne in heaven than you. I'm going to be his right-hand guy. They start arguing with each other instead of saying, Lord, how awesome it is. Lord, this is incredible. Lord, are you going to die for us? Instead, they were arguing over who would be the greatest when he came into his kingdom. Well, guess what? The same exact thing happens here when they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever, whatever we ask. They didn't come in awe and in reverence and appreciation for what the Lord was about to do. Instead, they came seeking blessings for themselves. Matthew 19, 28 says, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's telling them they're going to be rewarded in heaven. And they've taken that to the point of saying, well, man, I can ask for whatever I want and God will give it to me. Do we see churches like that today? Do we see churches that come to the Lord and say, Lord, we're, you're the holy Santa Claus up in the sky, and as long as we tell you enough times and you have to give us what we want because we're going to ask you about faith, right? Have you ever seen that before? Right? If we have enough faith, you just have enough faith. That's weak. Faith in what? Faith in faith? Faith is only as strong as the object you place your faith in. Amen? And your faith, if it's not in Jesus Christ, 
It's a waste of time. And people are talking about subduing the earth, you know, and I want to have a, I'm going to say Cadillac, 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 and I'm going to just pray it over and over, and there's going to be a Cadillac out my driveway. You know what? You can have a stinking earth, amen? This is wood, hay, and stubble, and chaff. It's all passing away. I don't want a Cadillac, man. I want to serve God. Amen? And what happens is there's people that, you know, name it and claim it. If you're sick, you don't have enough faith. That's, that's, that's noise. And they're coming with this kind of attitude. We want to ask you whatever we want to ask, and we want you to answer it. Now, let me see what the Lord's response is to that. The Lord said, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you whatever you want. Is that what he says? Read the next verse. That's not what he says. The Lord says to him, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't just say, okay, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He says, you tell me what you want me to do for you. What do you want me to do for you? Because if you ask according to selfish ambition, it's not going to happen. But if you ask according to my will, then it'll be done. Amen? You know, that, why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because the Bible says there's no other name on which we can approach the Father. Amen? He's the only intermediary. And you know what? You don't pray something in someone's name that is contrary to their will or their nature. Right? doesn't make any sense. You know, we could also say at the end of our prayer, Lord, we believe this is your will. That's the same thing as saying in Jesus' name. Amen? Lord, we believe this is according to your will. You know, Lord, I know that the girl at work is not saved, and I know the Bible says do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but, you know, I'll bring her to church. So, you know, Lord, she's fine. So, you know, could, could I please have her? God will never answer that prayer. Amen? You know, could I please have... You know, we, we pray for things that are amiss. You know, the Bible says in James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own physical pleasures. People pray desiring for their will. My will, not thy will. We need to pray according to His perfect will. And they come and say, will you give us whatever we ask? And the Lord says, well, tell me what you want. What is it that you desire? To him that, who is able to do above all that we ask or think, the Bible says. Wouldn't it make more sense to let God make the decisions for your life instead of you making them? Amen? Does God know better than me? Doesn't he? God knows so much better. You know, the Bible says he's able to do above all that we ask or think. You know, sometimes we just need to get on our face and say, Lord, your will be done. Lord, I'm going through difficulty. Lord, your will be done. Lord, I'm not even going to give you a plan. I'm not going to try to write it down. You don't need my help. Lord, your will be done. Let me just fall in love with you. You guide me. You lead me. You direct me. And you help me to obey you. Next verse. Verse 36. Verse 37. They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on your left, in your glory. Now some people think that they're talking about in your glory being heaven. And as I study the text, I don't believe that's the case. I believe they still think that he's going to establish an an earthly kingdom. When you come into your glory, your place of position, we want to be the ones sitting on your right and on your left. And whether it's heaven or earth, that's not something they can really ask for. We want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. These guys have walked with Jesus for three years. They witnessed Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They heard Him proclaim His coming death just a few verses ago. But they're still looking for an earthly kingdom, and they wanted to be the next in command. They wanted to be like Joseph. Here's Pharaoh, here's Joseph. Here's Darius, here's Daniel. We want to be your right-hand guy, Lord, when you get into the kingdom. Now, you think that they want to be that because they want to serve? Or do they want to be that because they want the position and the power and to be served? The Lord's going to teach him about true greatness. The true greatness does not come from being served, but from serving other, others. Seeking God's perfect will or our own selfish ambition. Worldly power, position, and honor are things that can entice us. Jesus' own apostles struggle with it all the time. Our weakness, short-sightedness, physical focus appear as much in our prayers as anything else. Let me ask you a question. When you're praying, is it selfish ambition or is it God's perfect will? When you pray, think about it. What do you pray for? Do you pray for the 
the promotion at work. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. But is that your main focus? Is that what you're praying for? Are you praying, you know, for the, the big house on the hill that you've always wanted? Are you praying for the new car? I mean, are you praying for physical things? Or are you praying for spiritual things that are going to outlast this life? What are you praying for? And that's a revelation of what's really in your heart. The Bible says, out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You know, what comes out of your mouth is a picture of what's in your heart. And as we pray, it gives us a, uh, us a picture clearly of what our heart is like. Our own personal comfort and worldly success or God's glory alone. What are we praying for? Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know what? As Christians, if you're sold out for God, you are going to be persecuted. Amen? The Bible says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all evil of man, all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. You will be per- now. If you're not facing any persecution, you're not standing up enough for Jesus Christ. Oh man, Pastor Dave, lighten up. Yeah, but here's the reality: if you're if you're if you're sharing with all your neighbors about the love of God, do you think someone once in a while might tell you get bent? You think that might happen? <laughs> Right? If you're, if you're sharing with your co-workers, you think you might face some resistance once in a while. And you know what? The apostles face resistance all the time. And those who are truly sold out for God. You know what? I believe time is short and no man knows the day or the hour. I don't know when the Lord's coming back. I can't tell you. But the Bible also says we can know the season. And guess what? It's rapture season. I'm convinced of it. And you know what? I want to live every day like He's coming back tomorrow. Amen? Let's, not, let's be sold out for God. We won't get to heaven and say, man, you, you should have done less for me. I mean, God, that's not going to happen. Amen? We're not going to say, oh man, I, I wish I went water skiing one more time. I wish I'd spent more money on my, I wish I'd spent more time at work. No, we're not going to say that. And I wish I'd done more for the kingdom of God. You know, not too long ago, beginning, just before I get back to the text, I had a friend who I was sharing my faith with at work up in Seattle. And you know what was really sad is I was sharing with him, but I'd never really sat down with him and really just told him the gospel from beginning to end. And the next night we were supposed to go out to dinner and he got killed in a car accident. The night we were supposed to go out for dinner, he got killed in a car accident right around lunchtime. And you know what God did? Put a sense of urgency in my heart that today is the day of salvation. Amen? That we don't have a promise of our conversation tomorrow. And we need not to dial it down, but we need to be stoking it up for the kingdom of God. The more we grow in Christ, the less we are concerned with ourselves, the more with God's glory, the lives of others. Know too that our God will never give us more than we can handle. Verse 38 says, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized with? The cup and the baptism, he's speaking here, the cup in the Old Testament is a picture of divine judgment on human sin and rebellion. And Jesus was asking his disciples if they could partake of the suffering and judgment of death that he was about was about to come upon him. He's saying, can you go to the cross like I can? Can you take the suffering which I'm about to take? They didn't understand it. So look at their response, verse 39. They said to him, we are able. Oh yeah, we can do it. They have no idea what they're volunteering for. Amen? We're able. The word there is a light-hearted and eager reply. Oh yeah, we can do it. It's that kind of reply. Oh yeah, no problem, no problem. Now, if he sat down and said, that means cross, death, suffering, pain, torment. Oh, wait a minute, stop. We want, we want to be sitting on the right and the left-hand throne. None of this torment stuff. I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for the crown. I signed up for the, for the throne. And it says here, look what he says to them. He's talking about in the future. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink of the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will indeed. You know, later, years later, having been filled with the Holy Spirit in the second chapter of Acts, they would indeed suffer like their master. The first apostle that was martyred was James. It's in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He was killed with the sword by King Herod. 
for preaching Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead. He was killed. John was tortured, basically, and went through torment his entire life. Tradition tells us that, that at the end of his life, he was boiled in oil and didn't die. Can you imagine they put you in hot oil and you don't die? You know, I used to say something in youth group all the time. You are indestructible until God is through with you. Amen? God wasn't done with John, so the oil didn't work. I mean, he got out of there. He probably didn't look too good, but he got boiled in some oil, and, he got, and you know what happened? Then they said, man, we can't kill this guy. So they put him on, out on the island of Patmos, and he wrote a book while he was there. What book was it? Book of Revelation. God wasn't done with him yet. They boiled him in oil and Lord said, oh, we're not done with you. You're going to survive. Now let's stick you out on the island. Well, we can drink of the cup. Well, they found out what that cup was, didn't they? Amen? We're able. Oh, yeah, no problem. Well, okay. And that's what, exactly what happened. They dealt with the cup. But you know what? By this time, years later, these guys got it. Because they had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And they were not afraid to suffer for the kingdom of God. You know, we think we're suffering for the kingdom of God in the United States because we have to sit on hardwood chairs for 45 minutes. Oh, this is a bummer, man. When are we going to get some nice you know, cushion pews. This is weak, right? But I've been in countries where, I've told you this before, people have to mouth the words of the worship song because if people heard them worshiping, they'd storm in and shoot them all dead. We know there's people over in Afghanistan right now on trial going to be put to death for showing the Jesus movie. And we, live in a, and we think we're being persecuted. You know, we have freedom to share our faith. Let's use it. Amen? Let's not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And look what it says here, verse 40. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. You know what the Lord is saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is not bestowed on a basis of selfish ambition, but it's by divine sovereign will. And Jesus is God, but He's still submitted to the will of His Father. Remember again, freshly prayer seeks a physical blessing, and spiritual prayer, prayer seeks God's glory alone. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Well, I guess so. So these guys come in, and the word there, greatly displeased, is indignant. And it's the same root word used by Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, which we saw last week, when the disciples kept the little children from coming to Him. Remember the Lord said He was greatly displeased that the the apostles were keeping the little children from coming to the Lord. Well now, the apostles are greatly displeased because James and John had asked for the right and left throne. Now, were they greatly displeased because they thought these guys were out of bounds? The answer is no. They were greatly displeased because they wanted to be on the right and the left hand. And who do you, man, you guys snuck behind our back. I was going to ask for that. You know, Peter especially. Man, I was in Mount Transfiguration with you guys. And you know, I was called the rock, not you. And you know, I think I'm supposed to be on the right hand. That's the kind of guys these apostles were before Pentecost. And so these guys are upset. You know, wow, man, you know, I was going to ask for that. And so they're upset and they bring division. And you know what? When we go about things in our flesh, we bring division. And that's exactly what happened. A man's character is shown by the things that provoke him to his strongest reaction. What makes you mad? I'll tell you your character by what what gives you great displeasure. If something gives you great displeasure, it'll show you. If you're you're just angry because the 49ers lost, you're going to be angry a lot. But, I mean, if if you get angry, and I'm 49 but if you get angry because the 49ers lost, guess what? That shows kind of where your character's at. And if you get angry at your boss because of the way you've been treated, you know, we say that we're slaves to the kingdom of God and we're servants. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. That's what the Bible says. You find out if someone's truly a servant if someone treats them like one. Amen? How do you react when they treat you like one? Yeah, I'm a servant. Yeah, go, can you go over there? And pay? I'm not picking that up. I'm not my turn. Right? Well, wait a minute. I thought you were a servant. Right? We find out someone's character. Now, the character of the Lord was he was angry. He was greatly displeased when they kept the children from coming into the kingdom of God. 
And these guys were greatly displeased that someone tried to get the seat on the right and left-hand side because they wanted it. We see different character, don't we? Amen? You know what should... You know, there, there's such a thing as righteous anger. I'm grieved when I hear some of the stuff that's going on in the world today. I'm grieved that we're aborting children and slaughtering babies. I'm grieved when I see the things that are going on all over our world. I'm grieved when I see what's happening to our teenagers. I'm grieved by what, what's going on when I, I see behind the... the I think it was called Behind the Curtain, whatever it is, and they showed what's happening in Afghanistan and stuff. That breaks my heart. And I'm grieved by it. And I think there are things that we can be grieved by, and there's things that can make us greatly displeased. But it shouldn't be the things of this world. We shouldn't be greatly displeased when we're mistreated at work. Why? That's an opportunity for the gospel. Amen? Easy to be on the cruise ship to heaven. How do you react when things go difficult? When you squeeze a lemon, what do you get? Lemonade, right? When you squeeze a Christian, you should get Christ-likeness. Amen? When you get squeezed at work, does Jesus Christ come out, or do you get angry? And you know what? I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm just saying that as Christians, we need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would fill us and overflow us to the point when we go through difficult times. And he's telling them, but to sit on my right and left hand, that is not mine to give away. That's for the Father only. And the ten got greatly disturbed. And, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He's telling them what the world says greatness is. How does the world define greatness? The world defines greatness. Mark 9.35 says, And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he will be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus instructs them again in this still unlearned lesson. Like many people today, the disciples were making the mistake of following the wrong examples. They were modeling themselves not after Jesus, but Admiring the glory and the authority of the Roman rulers, men who loved position and authority. Who does the world say is great today? Who, who would people say is great today? Would people say that Michael Jordan is great? Yes. What about Barry Bonds? Just hit a 73rd home run today if you didn't hear him. He must be great. He's great, right? All right? We, think, we think that Bill Gates is great. You know, actors, musicians, business leaders, world leaders, you know, our president. You know, we, we aspire greatness to men because of physical actions. You know, that guy can, I mean, think how stupid this is when you look at it from a spiritual point of view. That guy's great because he can take a stick and hit a ball over a fence. He's great? The Bible, what did Jesus say? Remember when the rich young ruler came to him and said, good teacher, what did the Lord say to him? Why do you call me good? Because there's only one who's good, and that one is God. Amen? So who's good? Only God. So who's great? Only God. If God's good, if God's the only one that's good, He's the only one that's great. I can guarantee you that. Amen? And we throw that word around. Barry Bonds is not great. Barry Bonds is a sinner who needs to be saved just like everybody else in this room. Amen? Bill Gates is not great. He's a sinner who needs to be saved just like everybody else in this room. You know, actors and actresses that we say that we admire. You know what? There's only one person that can be my hero. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen? Nobody else, because everybody else is a sinner. Everybody else is in need of a Savior, just like me. And you know what? We, they are, aspire greatness to position. Man, I want to be seated at the right hand of the Father. I want to be on the right throne. I want to be right next to you. I want to have that position. I want everybody to look up to me and think how wonderful I am. But the Lord had told them, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. We define success by income, by possessions, by notoriety, but none of these things are great or even good. And Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good but one, and that one is God. Now look what it says in verse 43. Yet, I shall, yet it shall not be so among you. You know, they, they ascribe greatness and authority, and they look down on others, and they say, we're great because we have people serving us. It should not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your 
servant. The word servant there is diakonos, which means household slave. Does that word sound familiar? Diakonos? Is there a word you might think we got from that? Deacon. You know the word deacon? You know, first of all, a lot of churches have a deacon board. I don't get that either. Deacon means servant. But a lot of churches, the deacon board runs the church. Now, that's not in the Bible anywhere. That's the rules of men. Deacon means servant. I want to be on the deacon board. Okay, you can be a servant. Grab a mop. Let's go. You know what I mean? But a lot of times we think it's a place of power and authority and position. And I want people to look up to me. I want my name in the bulletin. Deacon Dave. Hey, Deacon Dave. I'm, that's me. I'm the deacon. Right? You ever anybody introduce themselves that way? Hey, I'm the slave. That's what they should be saying because that's what the word means. I'm the slave. Well, praise the Lord. Me too. You know, I've told you guys before, pastor means servant. Pastor means under rower. He's the one down at the bottom of the ship. Pastors are not to be served, they are to be servants. Amen? Jesus Christ is our example. Did He come to be served or to serve others? He came to serve others. And so many churches, it's all about getting in positions of authority. You know, and the world equates greatness to the number of people serving you. Well, I've got 145 people working for me in my office, you know, and that elevates me to some level of greatness. The number of people that are under me at work. Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard that terminology? You know what? Greatness in the world is how many people serve you. Greatness in God's kingdom is how many people you serve. Amen? You want to be great in God's kingdom? You learn to be the servant of all. That means all. What does all mean? It means all. All. You mean the guy in the... Yep. The guy, the guy that mistreats me at work? That guy too. Your boss is... Yeah, that guy. All of them. Serve them all if you want to be great in God's kingdom. The slave, it says slave, servant, verse 44. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all men. The word is doulos. One who forfeits his own rights in order to serve others. A disciple is to serve others not with his own interests, but voluntarily and sacrificially. You know, it's not serving somebody if it doesn't cost you something. You know, I'd be a servant if, it wasn't, you know, if I didn't have to give stuff up. Well, duh, that's what a servant is. Amen? Servant means that it's not about me. I've given you the acronym. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, so this stuff happens. I speak in bumper stickers, right? But joy, Jesus, J-O-I, Jesus, others, yourself. When you put Jesus first and others next and yourself last, you'll have joy. Amen? But when do you struggle? When you put yourself above others. Or, Lord forbid, when you put yourself above Christ. Not thy will, but my will, right? And that's what can happen in the life of, the, of unbelievers. And even the life of believers themselves, we can make that mistake. A disciple is to serve. God's pattern in Scripture is that a person must first be a servant before God would place them in a position to lead others, where they would continue to serve through leading. Right? They would lead through serving. A pastor is called to lead, but he's called to lead by serving others. What is a pastor's job? It's to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. What has God called me to do? Equip you guys so you can do the work of the ministry. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not called to be the head of this church. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Amen? I'm not the CEO of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. That's not how the kingdom of God works. I'm a servant, and that's what I'm called to be. You know, sometimes I have some of you guys call me at home, and you apologize for calling me at home. I'm a servant. Call me at home. Amen? 2 a.m., call me at home. I'm serious. That's what, when does a servant stop being a servant? When does a servant punch out? Never. You know what? Servants don't retire either. I don't get it. Oh, pastor, our pastor retired. How do you retire as a pastor? I'm, I'm going to stop being a I don't get it. You're a servant. It's a lifelong commitment. Amen? You serve until you die. That's it. I'm going to die preaching or God's coming back. That's it. There's not going to be any... I don't need a 401k. Amen? Don't need one. Because I got heaven. 
And that's where it's at. And so these guys don't get it. They don't understand what a servant is. The Lord's telling them, you learn to be a slave of all. That's what true greatness is. You know what? Let me give you some examples. Joseph, he served first. Do you remember that? Wasn't Joseph a servant first? Didn't he get thrown in jail? Didn't he go through a lot of difficulties in trial? Then he became the right-hand man to the king. What about Moses? Did he wander out? Wasn't he out there tending sheep? For 40 years, 40 in the Bible is a number of testing, by the way. Whenever you see 40, it means test, right? So God was testing him, preparing him for 40 years. Then he appeared to him in the burning bush and sent him back to free the people from Egypt. He had no idea that was coming, but he was a servant first before God used him to lead others. What about Joshua? Same thing. What about David? David was a total servant. David was a shepherd. David did whatever his father asked. David was anointed king of Israel and didn't become king for many, many years after that. He was a servant, and that's why God used him as a leader. Timothy. And of course, the ultimate example of this whole thing is Jesus Christ. Amen? Didn't he come to serve? Do you ever see Jesus doing anything for himself ever in the Bible? The answer is no. Everything he did, he did for others. Always. We're going to see that right here as we finish up. We're just going to take a few more minutes. Uh, I'm not even going to, as a matter of fact, we're going to stop here in verse 43 because we need to have, uh, if the worst team will come back up, we'll finish the chapter next week. Time got away from me. And whoever, whosoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even if the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator of the universe, made Himself of no reputation, it says in Ephesians 2, 7, and 8. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even to death upon the cross. The word there, ransom, refers to the price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. He said he paid the ransom. Who was the slave that he freed on the cross? You. The Bible says in Romans 3, you are a slave to sin. You're the slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, depending on whether you've given your life to Jesus Christ or if you've rejected Him. Everybody in here is a slave. It's just what you're a slave to. We're a slave to sin, we're a slave to righteousness. Jesus bore our sins upon the cross. He paid the ransom, and He freed us from sin and death. Next week we'll look at the blind man. I think it's awesome that right after this message of being a servant, Jesus starts going back to Jerusalem where He's going to be crucified, and the blind man is sitting there, and He cries out Jesus' name. And He says, Son of David. Son of David, which means Messiah. And the Lord stopped everything He was doing, and He went and ministered to one blind beggar. And that's exactly the way that we should be as His followers. Amen? We should be seeking after the kingdom of God, on fire for Him and love for Him, but listening for every single voice that we might stop and go minister to them and love them and and point them to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? But you know what? Tonight, what we're going to do now, and and it's hard to switch gears from that, but what we're going to do is, and I want to take a few minutes, is is I'm going to pray with you, but then we do communion a little different here at Calvary Chapel. Here's how we do it and I encourage you to do it as a family, is I'm going to pray, and then you just come on up and grab the elements. And go back, and you can sit at your seat or go sit somewhere else, wherever you want to. And if you're husband and wife, you guys can pray together. And basically what communion is, to make this really clear, communion is a representation of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. The Bible says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The bread is a representation of His body which was broken for us. When you think about his body, think about the pain, the torment, and the suffering that he endured for you, out of his love for you. And then the juice, which represents his blood, is a representation of his redemption. The fact that he paid the price. Don't you love the fact that the last three words Jesus said on the cross 
or it is finished. He said, Tetalistai. Amen? And you know what? We don't have to do anything else to be saved. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? And when we do this tonight, the Bible says we're not to take this if we're, if we're out of fellowship with God. So what I want to encourage you to do, the worship team is going to pray some, play some songs. Take a moment and examine your own heart. And come before God and say, Lord, if there's any area of my life where I'm struggling, if there's any area of my life, Lord, where I've sinned and I've not confessed it to you, if there's any area, Lord, that needs to change, just reveal it to me. And then just come before Him with a pure heart. Say, Lord, forgive me. And then after you've taken a moment to do that, and again, this is not a requirement. You come take communion if you feel led. Then just come on up and grab the elements or both sides here. Go back and sit at your seat. They'll continue to play some worship music. And just take communion in your own timing, okay? Let's go before the Lord with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You, Lord. And we thank You for the example of Your Son. We thank You, Lord, just for Your love and Your grace. And we thank You that, that You did go to the cross. That You endured the pain. That You were mocked and You were scourged. That You were spit upon. And Lord, that You were put to death. But Lord, we thank You that on the third day You rose from the dead. That You're a risen living Savior. But Lord, tonight I pray that the cross would never grow common. But Lord, as we take communion now, it would be in remembrance of what You did for us. Lord, examine each one of our hearts. May we come before You tonight, Lord, in just a place of restoration. Lord, if there's sin, may we confess our sin. And Father, we just thank You and praise You, Lord. And again, just draw us into Your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's, let's take a moment.